Welcome back to Everything Just Changed. I am Bryce Hales, and I am here with my friend Brad Edwards. We are pastors and church planners in the Western U.S., and we have started this podcast to help you navigate life in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world. And today we are excited that we are back with season two of our podcast. We have some exciting stuff coming up this season, and we want to give you a little bit of a sense of where we are going. Brad and I started uh, this podcast in what now feels like the really early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, uh, yeah, prehistoric even. <laughs> yeah, prehistoric. Back when we thought COVID was going to be a, uh, a short shutdown of a couple of weeks or a couple months. Uh, but one of the things we felt in those early days, there was a lot of hope. And a lot of Christians had this sense that the church was going to pull together and that because we have re- gospel resources at our disposal, that when our, our neighbors are freaking out, that the church was going to rise to the occasion and that we would see maybe this influx of people into the church because uh, of the way that Christians are living our lives, because we have hope and we have peace because of the gospel. And uh, so that was the hope initially. And that lasted for a very, very short time, uh, maybe the first two or three weeks of the pandemic. Pandemic, and then we began to see the tide beginning to turn. And we saw the wearing of masks become a political issue. And then Ahmed Aubrey and George Floyd, the news uh, of their killings hit the fan. And wow, that just changed everything. And instead of the Christian church being this uh, source of hope in the midst of a hurting world, it, it, it just became incredibly divided, incredibly politicized. And so in the uh, we started this podcast really talking about the influence of secularism in, uh, in our world. And we began talking about how there's really a right and a left version of secularism. But as things changed and as the evangelical uh, movement or church uh, became really complicit in the divisiveness of our culture, Brad and I began to realize that there was, there's something else going on. It's not just a secularism, that there's actually a virus that has infected both the secular worldview, but also the evangelical worldview, and that is individualism. Absolutely. Because as, as we were getting this podcast started, uh, our reason for kind of looking at, at secularism as this overarching umbrella cultural dynamic uh, was in the hopes that as Christians, we would be able to find things within the secular, uh, or, you know, a secular culture that we could affirm and encourage and say yes and instead of no but. And Mark Sayers, uh, the author and Australian pastor who who's half of this cultural moment that podcast that probably anyone listening to us knows about already and we've talked about you know he defines secularism as uh, the pursuit of the kingdom without a king and and what was helpful about that is is it gave language and opportunity for us to say that hey the values that a lot a lot of the aspects of secular culture are things that as Christians we can say yes there's actually in, in a common grace sense, things that we can affirm, and, and these are the avenues through which we can kind of come together, um, you know, I I don't think I had any hopes that the culture wars would like go away overnight, but I thought they might take a back seat to, you know, the, the pandemic and then racial. Or or as people, I think, I think maybe, I mean, I feel like I hear Mark Sayers talk a lot about the hope that 
as the secular world sees that the pursuit of the kingdom without acknowledging the king like that, that lifestyle is not sustainable. And so we're seeing it even now beginning to crumble and that that would open up a hunger for the king and that people would actually come back to Christianity. And there would be this great moment of renewal. And I still in some ways hope that that's going to be the case. Well, and I don't think that I, I totally, I 100% agree with you, but I think that right if if understanding the problem is is necessary for the solution the realization that you and i had in the midst of this conversation was that secularism actually is not the umbrella overarching this conversation that we need to talk about it's actually individualism right, right. this idea that uh, which is which is dominant within secularism but i think what we've seen is it's actually way more a, a, a root dynamic within evangelicalism than we had seen before. And so let's, let's define that term, even individualism, because, um, in season one, when we were talking about this, and especially, I think it was the episode where we were talking about its impacts on community. Um, yeah. but we define individualism as, uh, a, a DIY approach to identity. It is, it is our attempt to achieve our identity, to achieve that which gives us our dignity, value, and worth. And so in the midst of that, um, you have kind of a spectrum between like, if that is, if that is the way that individualism says you find your dignity, value, and worth, what the gospel says is you, you don't achieve that, you receive that. Um, and as a side note, it was really cool uh, as when we heard uh, Carrie Nywolf interview Tim Keller, and he used the same language. So, Tim, uh, if you're listening, uh, um, <laughs> listening and popularizing the the podcast where we talked about that, uh, like a month I think before that <laughs> interview was published. Yeah, uh, probably far more likely that uh, he he might have said that, and we like picked it up subconsciously. Yeah, I think the sad reality that that interview with with Tim didn't come out until after. Uh, we had said that, but I think they recorded it before we said it. So, oh, I mean, not, not, yeah, oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, I think we just got the same place as Keller, which which is a good thing, good so, place to be. Yeah, totally. Uh, anyway, so, but but that kind of DIY of your identity, the, the achieving your dignity, value, and worth, we realized it became very clear that that is that has become a huge aspect of evangelical subculture, and therefore. And, and the way that that expresses itself within evangelicalism is this. If the pursuit of the kingdom without a king is secularism, then evangelicalism, in part because it consistently and continually uh, defines itself over and against secularism as an anti-vision, has become, I think, especially over the last uh, four or five, six years, uh, but it's been going this way, way for a long time. It has become a movement and a subculture that worships the king without his kingdom. And so it's king, but no kingdom as a contrast to secularism that is all about kingdom without the king. And it makes equal and opposite errors in so many ways. And we realize this, Bryce, maybe you can talk about how this evolved through this conversation in particular that we had with Brandon Washington. Uh, yeah, I think one of the turning points, one of the turning points in the aha moment for us was uh, in our first season when we had a conversation with Brandon Washington, largely around the issues of racial reconciliation and justice. Mm -hmm. um, he, he used an analogy that 
has so much broader implication than even just to that issue. And he was talking about this reality that uh, in his home, uh, in, in front of his house, he has this uh, fruit tree. And he came home one day and there were tree trimmers there trimming the trees in front of his house. The HOA had sent them out to trim the trees. And he asked if they were going to trim this one tree in the middle of his lawn. And the arborist said, no, we're not going to trim that because we're not supposed to trim fruit trees. And he said, I've lived here seven years and that tree has never borne a single fruit. And uh, the expert said, well, that is a, a pear tree. He said, well, if it's a pear tree, why doesn't it bear pears? And, uh, and he learned that it's because it's a domesticated pear tree, that because people like the way it looks, but the fruit is annoying, they've domesticated the tree's ability to bear fruit out of its DNA. So it looks good, but doesn't actually bear fruit. And Brandon was m- making the analogy that so often that's what the Christian church uh, looks like. We, we have the, the DNA, but it has been so domesticated. The gospel DNA has been so domesticated that we're no longer bearing gospel fruit. Hmm. And that really is a pretty good picture of what we're talking about when we say that evangelicalism has become this attempt to worship the king, but not live into or follow into the kingdom realities that the king leads us into. And the, and the reality is, is in the same way that a, uh, you know, using Sayers' def- definition of secularism, that is a pursuit of the kingdom without the king, over time, and the further away that secularism gets from a biblical Christianity that says king and kingdom both, the, the more that that kingdom becomes defined in more purely individualistic terms. And so it ends up sliding into uh, what we're going to kind of categorize and and refer to as a fundamentalism that is very kind of left-leaning, progressive, out of secularism, but says no king and no kingdom. And it's just about whatever gives the most autonomy, in particular, to other people. As a contrast, evangelicalism leads to the same kind of category of fundamentalism, but it's a more uh, conservative flavor of it that is, as it gets away from building the kingdom, we start to define the kingdom according to our own terms. Over time, we are the ones sitting on the throne, and it is just as individualistic and fundamentalist, except it's, it's, it's more about our individual liberty, autonomy, and freedom. And so, Again, the anchor of that individualistic impulse from both evangelical and secular kind of aspects of culture ends up pulling them toward an achieved identity further away from king and kingdom. Because when you when you ditch one or the other, that is the ultimate result in a, in a Western individualistic context. Yeah. So let's talk about some examples here, Brad, of how we're seeing this. So the two issues that have become the flashpoints of the polarization in our culture are protests of police brutality and wearing masks. And these are falling out along incredibly predictable lines that it's those in the evangelical camp who see the wearing of a mask in public as an affront to their individual liberty. And so the, the response has been, you know, you don't, you don't have the right to tell me that I should wear a mask because I don't, if I don't want to wear a mask, I don't have to wear a mask. You're controlling me. 
I follow the king. And the idea that my behavior and wearing a mask affects other people and like that's a kingdom reality that evangelicals are pushing back against. On the other side, protests and increasingly violent protests of police brutality. Right, yeah, and our concern, as it should be, is the constraint of freedom for people who do not have the same freedoms that other people in our society do, right? This is the entire concept of privilege, that um, if you are white, and especially if you um, started in a, a more middle class uh, socioeconomic category and you are white, you don't have the same constraints, limitations, discriminations against you that a person of color with the exact same socioeconomic circumstances would. Yeah. Uh, it, I mean, just, just your last name or your first name on a resume uh, is enough sociologically, there's studies of this, to like not to either get considered or not get considered because yeah. of implicit bias. And, and secular... Uh, culture in our country rightly says that's wrong. That's not okay. We can have some, you know, conversations on the solutions because a lot of the solutions devoid of king become problematic. But it's still, if you if you notice in both the kind of evangelical or secular expressions of individualism here. They're both appeals to freedom. They're both appeals to autonomy because that is the, it is only through autonomy that a, an individualist can achieve their identity as if there are no constraints on it. And that's why both conversations, and, and I would say, you know, one with a little bit more warrant than, than the other, um, both have and have the, have the weight and feel of, of ultimate things. Because yeah. for an individualistic culture, it is an ultimate thing. Because the, the, the difference between whether we have freedom or autonomy or not is the difference between we are able to feel okay about ourselves, to find that dignity, value, and worth that we feel like we have never had. Yeah. And so if my identity is something that I don't receive because of what God says about who I am, but my identity is based on what I achieve, then if you disagree with the way I'm expressing my identity, you're not just disagreeing over kind of uh, beliefs that I hold. You're actually silencing me as a person. You are you're shutting my identity down. Yes. You're and that denying me salvation. You're, yeah, you're denying my dignity as a, as a, as an individual, as a human being. And that's why these conversations have taken on such heat. It's not like people didn't disagree over issues before, but they're so polarized because they've been raised to the level of who am I? And if you don't acknowledge the way I'm expressing myself and validate it, you're denying my personhood. Absolutely. And <laughs> right. It is, uh, it is incredibly tragic that that's the intensity that often characterizes evangelical Christians engaging in this conversation, because that that intensity alone is betraying and and exposing an idolatry that is not biblical. And the fact that evangelicalism feels threatened by secularism, rather than just speaking, continuing to speak truth with love as if secularism is not a threat, is kind of how we is proof positive that. Uh, that there's something wrong 
that there's something going on that needs addressing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that that really gets to, you know, one of the tragedies that I see in myself and that I see in others who call themselves Christians is maybe let me say it like this. It would be easy to listen to this and say, what are you talking about? Like, I'm a Christian. I don't have a a DIY identity. I'm not trying to achieve my identity. My identity is in Christ. And Mm -hmm. we can say those words but the, the way I like to think about it is that there's an enormous difference between Jesus as the foundation of my life and Jesus as like the cherry on top of my life. And the reality is that the way that so many of us are living as Christians is that we assent to the truths of the Bible. Did, did Jesus uh, raise bodily from the dead? Yes. Is the Bible the word of God? Yes. Um, and so because we assent to those truths, we are Christians, but the way that we actually look at our dignity, worth, and value is that it is something that we achieve, whether it's through, you know, I think of myself as a good person because uh, my kids are turning out well, I'm a great parent, or, you know, it's it's the financial security that I achieve through my job. I work really hard, I provide for my family, or it's kind of just the pursuit of a comfortable lifestyle. Um you know, work hard and play hard. Those are all the ways in which we are, even ourselves, and we're seeing people in our churches attempt to achieve their identity and and then turn around and say, but I'm a Christian. Uh, I am who I am in Christ because I give assent to a handful of theological truths. And if that's not a picture Mm. of trying to worship a king without embracing his kingdom, I don't know how much more clear we could make that. Man, well, I mean, I mean, I don't remember who first said this, but I think if you, especially if you're listening and you're a pastor, you have you have found significant validation and comfort in, in this quote. And I think it, it might have been Scott Sauls. If he didn't say it first, I think he probably popularized it, or it was all roads lead back to Tim Keller or C.S. Lewis because they're <laughs> two generations of the same person, right? Um, but uh, right, if if you if if you are too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals, you're probably preaching the gospel. Right. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. However, what that doesn't like the left right spectrum while helpful has always like, we haven't been able to figure out like, this is part of the reason why we've landed on this paradigm because that doesn't fully explain why um, you can be worried about uh, mass preconditioning you for government control and a restriction of religious liberty. Um, but but then be okay with your neighbor who is not able to walk down the street without fear um, or or watching a a black uh, little girl who uh, you know sees a a police officer comes up and, and just start crying because she's afraid for her life like this viral video that that went across social media, right? Like, like it doesn't explain left, right does not explain that. Right. But if what you're saying, Bryce is true of evangelicalism, and I think, I think it really is, um, at least as in a general sense, then Jesus is not your King. He becomes your mascot, right? Mm -hmm. He becomes your cheerleader Mm -hmm. in exchange for your fidelity to, uh, to those things, which are about, uh, worship and allegiance to him, he then gives you what you really want. He gives you your kingdom. Mm. And, and, and that is, some of you listening uh, will be able to hear like, well, that's the health and wealth gospel. And 
absolutely. It's explicit there, but I think it's very implicit has crept into the church through this culture of, of, of individualism. Uh, and, and, and I mean, and we're seeing that in kind of this corporate freak out moment that we're all having because, because we, though m- most evangelicals, I think would deny the kind of prosperity gospel in a theological sense, we've sort of swallowed it accidentally anyway. And so this idea that that suffering, that hardship is a regular part of the Christian life is very clear in the New Testament. It's been absent in the lives of evangelicals for the last 200 years. Yeah. And, and so the idea now uh, that I would wear a mask, even though I'm perfectly healthy, for the sake of someone else, now feels like persecution. Absolutely, right? So Bryce, when we were first talking about like the helpful contrast between your context and my context. Um, we said that yours is very kind of like conservative leaning, uh, secular context. And mine is progressive leaning secular context. And what this helps me understand in, in our respective places is, um, how much when you worship the king without the kingdom, you have, you have focused on, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, but then neglected love of neighbor. And then in the secular sense, especially a more progressive end of the spectrum, culturally speaking, it is neglecting uh, the love of God, but very much valuing a love of neighbor. And, and this is important because when we planted our church, the table, it'll be four years on August 14th is, is our fourth anniversary. Um, we really knew we live in a secular context and we led very much with a vision that was about love of neighbor. And we were mm. trying to reach people who were in the secular context. Well, it turns out that when we launched the table just a few months uh, before the 2016 election, uh, that election sparked a, a flood of people that honestly was already in exodus uh, through everything that you read about the rise of the nuns and the demographic shifts and the, the people leaving the evangelical church. That got accelerated with the 2016 election. And we ended up being a church that, yes, we have, I think, reached some aspects of our secular culture, but more so than that, we have been the safety net for people who are leaving evangelicalism and, and, and saying like, hey, I know that you have, you know, evangelical theology, but you sound like this thing that I'm actually leaving the evangelical church for. I'm longing for a deeper engagement, not just fidelity to God, but a flourishing of our neighbor. And and that's where the table ended up landing in ways that we didn't necessarily plan, but we're just positioned there for as people were fed up with and frustrated within the evangelical church that as they're reading scripture and talking about fidelity to scripture are only following those parts that are, are, are about worship and not love of neighbor. Yeah. Which is fascinating because I, I guess this is somewhat predictable at this point. We've sort of had the opposite experience or the experience on the other side of the spectrum where we in a more conservative, uh, more at least in some ways uh, place that's culturally a little bit more friendly to evangelicalism um, some of the pushback that I have gotten has been from people saying, oh, you're letting um, political correctness influence your preaching when, with all due respect, to say that political correctness is the thing that's driving, like any mistakes I'm making, it's not because I'm trying to be politically correct. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, I, I can I can say that. But but I think what's often happening is in in our context, we're connecting with people who, when when we're coming down firmly on kind of the theological truths, they're with us. But then when we talk about the kingdom application, the response is, "Oh, that's just politically correct." But the the reality is conservatives are okay with kingdom application when it talks about um, dignity of life or personal and sexual purity, those issues. When we when we begin to talk about issues of, of racial justice, evangelicals get very uncomfortable very quickly, as we're seeing on a national level. When it, when we begin to talk about poverty, um, again, evangelicals get very uncomfortable. Jesus talked about poverty a ton. And so um, when, when, if that's making us uncomfortable, then we've got to ask the question of what has evangelicalism actually become, Man. Which, which is an issue that has, I mean, we're not the first ones to, to recognize that there is a problem in evangelicalism, right? And we're kind of experiencing this both in different ways, but it's been 20 years or so that, that people who study these trends are seeing, okay, millennials are leaving the church you know, you're providing a safety net for them on the way out. Um, we're, you know, I guess we're trying to provide a safety net for them in some ways too, although our context is different. A lot of the time, the conversation about what's going on in evangelicalism comes back to this thing that's called, that's known as the evangelical quadrilateral. Yeah. So this quadrilateral um, was originally coined and identified by um a historian, theologian, church historian by the name of uh, Bebbington. And these four kind of components of evangelicalism within the broader category that is Protestantism, uh, he defines as conversionism, activism, biblicism, and crucicentrism, right? So conversionism is, is that, that emphasis on evangelism and being born again. Um, the emphasis in the language of being a born again Christian is just another way of saying uh, uh, the importance of having the outside in transformation and salvation of the gospel, right? Yeah, so we don't necessarily just like grow up in a, in a home and imbibe the faith of our parents, even though practically that's what happens. We have to have this conversion experience. Absolutely. Um, the second, activism, is an emphasis and an expression of the gospel in a kind of missionary capacity and in social reforms. Um, you know, the, the evangelicalism's um, very uh, consistent focus on pro-life issues politically and otherwise uh, is, is a good example of that. Um, biblicism, uh, so a high regard and obedience to scripture as ultimate authority. You see that as God's word, not just uh, a good idea, right? And and then a crucicentrism that stresses the sacrifice of Christ on the cross uh, and 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 seeks to live a life that is also equally sacrificial and picking up our cross to follow him. Now, that quadrilateral, we would agree wholeheartedly, has historically defined the evangelical church. Bryce, I don't even think we've talked about this offline, but I, I have a very real theory that um, starting with kind of 9-11 and the kind of uh, injection of fear that, the, that, that terrorism and that as a, a shape uh, that kind of liturgy started to shape our culture and shape the church. We mm -hmm. started to allow fear to become a greater motivator for us. And we started to double down on self-protectionism that, mm. that 
escalated into the election of President Donald Trump. And kind of that became the, the climax of that, that fear-based decision-making process, at which point I would say at whatever degree, whatever speed along the way over the, that 16-year, that 15-year 15 period, we really started to truncate activism uh, and and to relegate our activism to only those things that we felt like were related to our conscience and worship, right. uh, in the political spheres, and a and I I don't want to overstate this, but how in what meaningful sense can we say we are crucicentric if if wearing a cloth barrier over our mouth and nose is too great a sacrifice for the good of our neighbor? Are we really crucicentric if if <clears throat> are saying that any infraction on our liberty and autonomy is is not worth it. Mm-hmm. So there's some, I, I think we have drifted. The evangelical church, the movement, the culture of evangelicalism has drifted from this significantly and toward... Yeah. Could I could I maybe say that slightly differently? Because I, I think I think what we um when most people who are talking about what's going on in evangelicalism or Christianity today talk about um activism is waning mm-hmm. in in um you know, they would agree that those four characteristics have defined evangelicalism, but but evangelicals are really jettisoning activism. And I mean, just to think about this from a historical standpoint, um, now when we think about activism, uh, the the activism of evangelicalism, we can only really think about pro-life activism. But historically, uh, I mean, William Wilberforce in the in the UK opposed the slave trade, almost single-handedly ended the slave trade in the British Empire as an evangelical. Um, you know, in the United States, the civil rights movement, though not uniformly supported by evangelicals, was still in in significant ways supported by evangelicals. Um, and yet we're seeing, so activism has been truncated. But I, I, I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense that, especially post 9-11, it's almost like fear begins to push activism out of the evangelical quadrilateral. And what's happening is that fear turns us inward. And so evangelicalism becomes more individualistic. Mm-hmm. And so the refusal to wear a mask now because I'm an evangelical, not that all evangelicals are refusing to do this, but the, the pushback is I don't want to, so I don't have to. And the idea that I would use my freedom for the sake of others, though thoroughly biblical, is no longer an important part of evangelicalism. Um, yeah, 100%. And this is, right, actually understanding history and church history is is really really important in this conversation because um, it's, it's interesting. A, a, I think he's a professor of church history. Um, his name's John Fee. He's written uh, a few different books that are really, uh, his most recent one, Believe Me, which is about looking at the evangelical church and how that connected to and gave rise to the election of Donald Trump. Um, he makes the point that uh, from the very beginning, uh, the Christian uh, church in the United States was in many ways founded on a a, a, a 
motivation of fear, right? The escaping of the, uh, the Puritans escaping persecution in England, landing in Boston and Salem and, and all that, like there's, there's always been this, this thread of fear throughout, but it has kind of given rise or come more to the surface at various times. And we see that happening now in particular because we see evangelicalism's power and influence waning. And so it becomes and feels like an existential threat. And so, man, all of this is, there, there's so much to talk about uh, in this. And so this is why our entire second season of this podcast is going to be oriented around this conversation of um, king and kingdom and whether our identity is achieved or received and how that expresses in secularism and evangelicalism. We're going to cover topics that range from and boy, are we going to get into politics because how can we not talk about politics as we get closer to the 2020 election? Um, I'm also a total nerd on this. So Bryce doesn't have a choice, unfortunately. Um, but, but strapping in. Right, exactly. And so we're going to talk about politics. We're going to talk about how social media is shaping this narrative and how we try to find meaning through narrative. I mean, to be clear, to be clear, when we're talking about politics, we're not, we're not going to talk about like, this is how you should vote. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to explore the way that politics has become a new identity marker that in some ways, even for evangelicals is, is trumping their, um, their faith, not to, uh, Pun know, <laughs> not to use that pun intentionally, but there. But here's here's let me let me give just one example of that. Right, what is your vote? Is your vote a conscience uh, a conscious issue that is related to your fidelity to worship the king? Or is it a resource that you are called to steward for the sake of your neighbor? The way that you understand even your vote uh, is gonna largely dictate whether you are coming from a more evangel evangelical kind of king, no kingdom perspective or a secular kingdom, but no king perspective. And so there are so many places where as Bryce and I have been trying to like test this theory and this paradigm are, are unbelievably consistent throughout all the different flashpoints in, in in our society right now. Yeah. Yeah. So where we are going uh, in, in our next episode and the rest of this season is, is we want to introduce you to a paradigm that we didn't really think of as much as stumble into. <laughs> that is a, a paradigm that centers around the idea that Jesus is our King who calls us to follow him into his kingdom, the kingdom of God, that is God's ever expanding rule and reign in this world. And um, we're going to introduce that to you in the next episode. We, we think that this is actually a far more um, effective way of explaining what's going on culturally, because it helps us understand evangelicalism and secularism in some ways, both aberrant forms of Christianity or kind of post-Christianity. And, uh, and it presents, a, I think, a really beautiful and compelling solution as we ask the question, okay, so now where do we go? Amen. We are so excited to be back for season two of Everything Just Changed. We want to invite you to take a look at our new website, kingandkingdom.community, where you can see our uh, paradigm in a graphical way that will help you understand what we're talking about here and in the rest of the season, and also give you a little hint at our solution. Where are we going? Take a look at it at kingandkingdom.community. 
While you're there, you can uh, subscribe to get notifications for new episodes, additional resources, and interact with us and others around these themes. Join us next week. We will be back diving in deeper, looking at what does the king without the kingdom look like in our world. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Bryce Hales. I'm with Brad Edwards. Our theme music was recorded by Kevin McLeod and used under a Creative Commons license from filmmusic.io. And our logo was designed by Danny Rankin. We'll be back next week helping you navigate life in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world right here on Everything Just Changed. Thank you.